Hello and welcome to episode 13 of It's Lit But Is It Funny, the podcast where we apply the wedgie of comedy to the bum crack of literature. My name is Jonathan Pinnock and I'm the author of the Mathematical Mystery Series of Comic Thrillers published by Farago Books. My guest today is fellow Farago author Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch, author of the utterly brilliant Darkwood trilogy, as well as being a proper fully paid up member of the British comedy establishment, having written for all manner of programmes such as The News Quiz, Horrible Histories and The Now Show. Welcome, Gabby. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> I feel well, very welcomed. <laughs> we'll talk a bit more later about Gabby and her work, but we'll begin by looking at the book which she's chosen to discuss, which is John Hegley's poetry collection, The Family Pack, which is actually a compilation of three books, for Brother-in-Law and Other Animals, Can I Come Down Now, Dad? And These Were Your Fathers. In fact, when you chose this, I thought, brilliant, I've already got Can I Come Down Now, Dad? And These Were Your Fathers. So all I've got to do is get hold of a copy of The Brother-in-Law and Other Animals. However, it turns out that was published in some obscure private press, engraved on stone tablets or something, and cost a bloody fortune. <laughs> oh no, and it doesn't have it's it's very thin as well because this is a normal. <laughs> this is a, the family pack is a, is a is an extremely normal sized book. In yeah, fact, it's sort so, of slim. It's slim for a for a book. Um, it's three books, so so it probably cost like however much for like 20 yeah, pages well, of books. I got it for a couple of quid on Abe. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> anyway, never mind. So, what uh, what what made you choose this as as, as your as your book? Uh, what made me choose? It's just fondness. Fondness. I was so I was thinking about funny books that I've loved, and I sort of was going down. Oh, do I choose a Discworld book? Or do I choose mm. you know a Hitchhiker's Guide or something like that? And I I just thought about. I was sort of, I was looking through my shelves, and I still have this book which is clearly uh, sort of no longer <laughs> no longer very available and I've kept it because I I love it so much so when I was a, a teenager when I was a very dorky teenager I would be listening to I'd be staying up late to listen to Radio 4 <laughs> To Gosh. listen to Radio 4 on a Wednesday How night. Cool. <laughs> I know, I was so hip. This, you know, this was the years of Britpop. This was Cool Britannia. I was sitting in the dark in my room listening to Radio listen to 4. Hearing with Hagley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Radio 4 used to have a late night comedy hour mm. um, that started at 11 o'clock on a Wednesday and went around till midnight. And Hearing with Hagley was a 15 minute slot that yeah. uh, sort of often came on that usually before or after something really weird like the, the fractal something about a fractal cat where Greg Proop played a, a talking cat there was I'm just trying to remember some other things that that were in this it was a really weird space for some really sort mm. of weird comedy I think that's when the original Harry Hill's Fruit Corner played in oh that God. sort of late night slot so I was yeah. listening to a, a lot of people who have since become really huge listening to their mm. sort of experimental late night Wednesday Wednesday night on Radio 4 show and I used to really love hearing with Hegley used to be one of my favorites I really liked it when that was on because he is a very he is very much a sort of performance poet it's all about the yes. sort of performance of it and I have this book I must have I must have bought it before I went to university because when I went to university in 1998 so I went to the University of Kent at Canterbury, which has mm. got the Gulbenkian Theatre there, which a lot of comedians, would, if I talked to them about where I went to uni, they were like, oh, that's where the Gulb is. So the Gulbenkian Theatre in Canterbury is, is very beloved to a lot of people in comedy because I think it's it's a quite big size. So you can get, I think you can get 300 people in, but it feels like a small, even though you can get in 300, it feels like a small theatre just because of the way that it's sort of, the way that people sit. Mm. So you can you can have like a decent crowd in and, and make a decent amount of money, but it also feels like it's it's quite cosy and you can have a chat to people. You don't, you're not just talking to the front row, you know, you can communicate with, with people sort of quite far back because of the way they sit. So so the first show I went to go and see at the Gulbenkian in like my second week at university was John Hegley. He happened, oh, he wow. happened to be there. He happened to be there in October when I started. Mm. And I, I went and watched him live and I brought my little book for him to sign. So this is a signed copy. 
that awesome. I took that wasn't signed when I bought it. Like I took mm. it to his show uh, instead of going, instead of going out with a bunch of rugby players who all <laughs> I think I, I met up with them in the bar later and they all sort of made fun of me for caring about this and that I at that point I was I was aware that that I was going to go and find some other friends. These are just people who happen to be. <laughs> I think some of the girls were in the, the corridor that I was in, in halls. I was staying with them, sort of befriended these lads. And I was like, you're quite boring, aren't you? <laughs> um, or at least you're, you're not into what I'm into. Yeah. And so yeah. I am going to not, you're not, I suppose nobody's like uh, <laughs> boring, you know, that's not an absolute, but I found them dull and they found me dull. So it's like, well, this, this isn't a friendship that's going to happen. So mm. yeah, I think it sort of, it, I, so I chose it. I think it, it, it sort of, it speaks to that, that time of my life. That was a time in my life when I was aware I wanted to do comedy. I ended mm. up not doing comedy for a living until I was, I started writing. I got my first paid sketch when I was 32 and this is when I was 18. So there nice. were, there were, yeah. there were many years of, of me sort of quietly yearning for, to be a part of this. And John Hegley was definitely one of, one of the people who, who made me think, I really want to do this. I want to do this for, for my bread and butter. I want this to mm. be how I make a living. And I think it's sort of a reminder that I've I've been feeling I've, I felt like that for a long time. Also, that just the the poems themselves are are, are wonderful. They're they're really sad. <laughs> a lot of they them are, are about being like, a lot of them are about really being abused. <laughs> they're very they dark. Very dark. Yeah. It's a lot of his experience <laughs> of child abuse from his parents in them. There's a lot of him having very unpleasant relationships as an adult with other adults in his family it doesn't have my favorite ones in it I'm surprised so I picked I picked this one because it's the one that I've got the my two favorite poems of him are Luton Bungalow and there's there's another one about him a very long poem about him going camping with a line there's room for a there's room for something, there's room for a breeze, there's room for innumerable steeplejack trees, there's room for a boomerang willfully hurled by Hercules. Um, and that poem isn't in there, and neither is Luton Bungalow, which is, I think, is my favourite one, which is very <laughs> dark, but written in a very, very silly way. It's got the line um, about his mum that she cleaned around the clock and around the settee, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is beautiful. <laughs> and then it goes on to talk about just him being horribly, horribly physically abused by his parents yeah. so it's got it's got a real lightness of touch to it while while dis discussing very dark very unpleasant things that happened to him in his life which is it's 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 not it's almost nostalgic it's no it's not nostalgic it is looking back a lot of it's looking mm. back at his childhood and his youth and there is some fondness to it, but it's it's too honest to be nostalgic. Yeah. It's you know this isn't I remember the corned beef of my childhood. <laughs> this is the <laughs> I remember the beatings of my childhood, yes. and that was socially fine. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's why I, that's why I chose that. Mm. Yeah, it is his style of poetry is, is interesting because it, it's the, the poem does all very rarely ends where you're expecting it to it's either too early or too late yes that's and, that's something i and that's part of the that, that i think that's part of what makes it funny yes yeah. a lot of humor is about surprise and he's yeah. full of surprises he puts rhymes in places where you're not expecting the rhyme to be like that there's room for a boomerang willfully hurled by hercules it's got a little <laughs> da dunk and it's got lots of those little beats, little silly moments that that make you laugh. Like the 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 poem about Luton, about looking back at. I'm going to find it. Yes. The, there's Come there's on, another. Ed, ends the one about, than you expect, yeah. doesn't it? Yes, I'm just going to find it in the book. So there's two that that really get big laughs when he does them live. Mm. When he does them live, uh, one is the the um, one about wood <laughs> about the type of wood that you use and he's got a very long way that he he introduces it talking about problems with sustainability and being careful about what materials do you use and about the overuse of, of certain materials in in sort of the leisure industry and sort of contemplating on all of this it's quite a long thing and then the poem is 
this winter, I hope you get a splinter if you use a toboggan and it is mahogany. Luton is, so he, he grew up in Luton and Luton goes like this, Luton. A poem about the town of my upbringing and the conflict between my working class origins and the middle class status conferred upon me by a university education. I remember Luton as I'm swallowing my crouton. The end. (laughs) (laughs) And there's that lovely delay at the end of it. Yes. Before the audience start laughing. Yes, I love that. Isn't that great? I, I'm a yeah. huge fan of delayed laughs. Yes. I've, I've, yes. I've managed to create a few when writing for, um, for audio comedy and mm. they are the most gratifying. The ones yeah. where oh, the I, audience I, I have imagine. had to yeah. think about it for, yes. and you get that little beat and you get the little titter. You get like a little titter at the start because people go, oh, this is the moment when I'm supposed to laugh. And, you get, uh-huh. and then there's like a beat and... They've all thought about it at the same time, and then it comes roaring in, and yes. that is, oh, yeah. that's satisfying. That's, that's, that's gorgeous. <laughs> and one of my favourites is, is a Barrow Escape. Mm. It's, my fortune was told me in Barrow by someone called old Madame Tarot. She said, danger is near. I was lucky to hear, because I ducked and avoided an arrow. <laughs> but, old, but old Madame Tarot wasn't quite so fortunate. <laughs> and that bit tacked on the end. That's wonderful. <laughs> It's yes. brilliant. It's absolute <laughs> genius. Yes. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> There's another one that I really love that, again, I, I can't find in this book. I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep talking about poems that he's written that, <laughs> that aren't in this book. <laughs> the one about being asked to being asked to, to light the fireworks. Uh, uh, somebody, the, son of, the son of the family being asked to light the fireworks for the very first time. He is very excited. He is very proud. He is 43 years old. <laughs> 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 yeah. So yeah, it's full of yeah, lovely little, lovely little jokes. And as you say, it's a sort of it's almost sort of the rhythm. He manages to get the rhythm of comedy down because he's got that sort of well, the surprising rhythms. In some ways, I, I was thinking about this, that think about, I mean, so much of comedy depends on rhythm. Yes, definitely. But poetry, you take the rhythm for granted, so he can actually play with not rhythm as well, mm. because he does poetry. Yes. And it's sort of, it's continually messing with your expectations. It's kind of like jazz, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's jazz yes. or like contemporary yeah. contemporary art music, the way that we, his so we, we know what that, like with the, the, the tarot reading, we know how that structure is supposed to go. And because we know what it's supposed to be, he can then play around with it, which, which is lovely. Yeah, it is. And it's part of the reason that he's such a good performance poet, because... Mm. It's, it's, it is best when you listen to it and listen to him reading it himself with his little inflections. Yes. <laughs> uh, I just sort of, I've just, I literally, I've just been sort of flicking through this. This is, this, the, so the brief reunion, La Reunion Breve, sort of sums it up with the sadness and the misery and the comedy and the, the sweetness and the bitterness all sort of mixed in together. In spite of all the beatings and the bile, The thing I most remember about my father is the smile he wore, the time he saw his Parisian mother for the first time in 17 years. And I heard him talk his first language for the first time in my life. And the tears flowed down their faces as they nattered on like nutcases. She was a poor and very ancient woman, but somehow she got the money together to come over to see her simile and wealthy son. The following morning after my dad had gone to work, my grandmother interrupted my mother's household duties with a suggestion of an unscheduled coffee break. When my dad came back that evening and inquired as to what the whereabouts of our visitor, my mum explained that she had had to go home early because she was an old cow. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really dark, (laughs) really dark. But there's the sweetness and the fondness for somebody who was horrible to him, and and the com- 
just the, that comedy of the getting rid of oh, getting rid of all the meter at the end, all the meter <laughs> and all the rhymes, but a punchline that is so dark. Mm. Yeah, can I tell my story about how I met him? Absolutely, yes. This is, <laughs> this is derailing conversation slightly, but <laughs> it, it, it's a weird story because I. When I was at university, I got involved in, in a, uh, an improvisation band thing. Uh, we were really terrible. <laughs> and we were caught, to give you an idea of how terrible we were, we called ourselves misunderstood on the way to Sainsbury's. <laughs> but we called, we spelt Sainsbury's S-A-N-E-S-Bury's. <laughs> and to go even further, uh, I, I was a regular member and I played the oboe. So that gives us an idea of how terrible it was. <laughs> and I'm actually going to play you a short extract now, as mm. Neil Innes used to say, I've suffered my heart, now it's your turn. But <laughs> Gabby is quite fortunate that I'm going to insert it in later when I do the edit, so she doesn't actually have to hear it. Anyway, we, we played one gig and it was it was fairly disastrous. But anyway, after I left university, I went to live in, in London. I was living in Streatham and I fancied starting up another impro band. So I put an advert in the local alternative bookshop and I got one response from this bloke living in Clapham who wrote songs and played the guitar a bit. This was 1978. And I went over to see him. I took me oboe. <laughs> he played some of his songs I improvised on the oboe, and it went as well as you might expect. I, I thought he was hopeless, and I'm pretty sure he thought I was as well. And nothing ever happened of it. And 20 years later, I found his note replying to my advert, and it was signed John Hagley. So um, I could have been a optician, you know. <laughs> the cars, right? <laughs> but that, I, was, I was thinking about performance poetry and how much comic poetry is allowed to exist that isn't performance poetry because if you look at all, all sort of the, the, the comic poets who who you, could, you sort of come across mm. I mean John Hegley, Roger McGough, Benjamin Zephaniah, yeah. even uh, Pam Michael, Ayers, Rosen. Pam Ayers, Michael Rosen, the whole they're all very much performance poets and the only yeah. non- but any funny poet I can think of who doesn't really perform as such is is Wendy Cope. Yeah. Uh, there there uh, must so, be more, but the, the, it seems it's one of those things that I'm, I'm not sure you're allowed to be a funny poet <laughs> unless you perform. I, I don't know about, I mean, I don't know about these days. Uh, when I think about funny poets, I often think about sort of ones from a while back, like oh, yeah. <laughs> Ogden Nash. Yes. And, um, okay. Obviously, Edward Lear never had this problem. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Edward Lear at uh, Hammer and Tongue doing. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my, my kids, especially my son, really, really loves Michael Rosen. He's like, mm. Michael Rosen's. A, to completely Actually, veer away from John Hagley, I'm sorry. Uh, he's yeah, like, go on. He, he, Michael Rose is a really interesting one because he's been around since the 70s, maybe even earlier. Certainly he was he was um, writing books that I loved as a kid. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. he's still he's still super duper famous with like mm. Generation Z and now Generation Alpha. Um yeah. like my my I did a little comedy course for like the kids in my daughter's class, but uh, and that was a while ago when she was like nine. And I asked them to like list people who they thought were funny. And they all said Michael Rosen, which mm. is really, really interesting. You know, this really old socialist. That is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and like the kids really love him. Like he has yeah. YouTube videos. He, my son was just really, really laughing because somebody had done what's called a YouTube poop, which is when you get properly famous on YouTube, you get what called YouTube poop, which is, is really sort of, I love Gen Z humour. It's neo-dadaist. It's really interesting. It is 
really weird and they love editing things and just making them almost nonsensical it is really dadaist it's mm. there's layers to it and it's really interesting but but yeah he was really he was really really laughing at, at this youtube poop video which is just like edited together to make it really really silly um and it was michael rosen and like, <laughs> these Gosh. kids like are treating him yeah. like he's you know you've got these sort of 18 year old influencers who yeah. like run around doing silly stuff and they're all like and all these kids are watching them and then are happily switching on to watching an 80 year old socialist yeah. poet who's been, Amazing, who's been writing since I was a kid. The guy yeah. who write, wrote We're Going on a Bear Hunt and they yeah. adore him. So yeah, he's, he's a really interesting one and he is so, that, that he's so popular uh, with the kids at the moment. There must be something about him something about his comedy and again I think a lot of it is his performance because he does have performances on on YouTube mm. and stuff like that and he's yeah. got that very very personal way of, of speaking that yeah. really makes I think the way that he performs poetry he makes his audience feel like he's reading it just to them that I think really um, well, if you, if, I mean if you listen to his his, his programs on Radio 4 he's, he's, mm. he's, he's, he's very absolutely natural communicator isn't he and, and, and that, that comes across as well isn't it yeah. yeah it really does I think it still definitely really really appeals to kids it's it's a different it's a different way to the way that John Hegley performs because John Hegley you, you you kind of feel like no matter what you're listening to him on you feel like you're part of the crowd you're part of the audience you don't feel mm. like it's just you and him in a room together which is how I think Michael Rosen performs yeah I mean, it'd be really interesting to, to find someone who'd never seen John Hagley live and present them with with uh, the family pack and say, "Yeah, what do you think of this?" <laughs> and, yeah. and see if it worked for them, or whether you just whether it's partly in the way he delivers it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think because so he has got his themes that he likes. I don't know yeah. if you're just reading it if that's going to come across as maybe a bit repetitive, but I think the repetitiveness is sort of a part of it. You know, mm. when he mentions his brother-in-law and he's doing the <laughs> reading, people will start laughing because you know it's going to be really funny and bleak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I was to Polly Hall in the last episode about, we, we're doing David Sedaris, mm. and we're talking about people who use their own family life as, as material. And how they navigate that. Yeah. It must be... It must be tricky. I don't know yeah. if his... I don't know... <laughs> how his brother-in-law feels about yeah, it. exactly. If his sister's still married or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's certainly brave. I think if any of them are still alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, I think, I think people in comedy are b being asked to this of them more and more I, I think sort of making comedy of your trauma is when I was listening to John Hegley in the 90s that was quite unusual mm. to make comedy of your own childhood trauma whereas these days it's like that's like route, route one. especially I think especially a, a lot uh, I remember um quite recently oh, I think it was on the Morton News so can we please just let female comedy writers and comedians just do something silly <laughs> instead of yeah. just it all having to be about our trauma. <laughs> I think especially yeah. if you're a girl one, if you're a lady one, they um they really want to, yeah, sort of come write about write another Nanette. I can't write Nanette. <laughs> 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 that hasn't happened to me. I want to write something silly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's be it's become sort of much more the norm now to to ask people to 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 write about horrible things that have happened to them, I think especially since you know comedy is um, a wealth of uh, mentally ill human beings. Yes. They've only got they've only got quite the well <laughs> to to dip from. Oh, you got mental, yeah, right. Write about your mental health problems. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone else in the industry's <laughs> got some, so you may as well. Mm. Uh, maybe this is a segue into discussing your work then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, mine's not about trauma at all. Well, no. mine's not, it is about some trauma, but so not, yeah. not about personal trauma. I've never had to go and live in the woods. <laughs> I mean, Darkwood is, is one of those rare trilogies where the final part is actually the best. Oh, and thank you. 
Yeah, no, it definitely is. I, I've just I finished Glass Coffin early on this week, and it, it really is. Oh, I'm glad you um, liked it. I had to I had to read I had to write the last fifth of that book on my phone. Oh God! Oh, my God. I never it, was do that. it was lockdown. Lockdown yeah. came and um, it was the first lockdown, so I didn't have enough devices because <laughs> it had kind of taken us by surprise. The second lockdown, not so much, because as soon as the first lockdown ended, I was like, "Well, that's not going to happen for the one time. Mm. That's not it." So I'm going to get more. Um, I've bought. I've, been paid quite a bit so I bought the kids laptops so that they could do lockdown two which happened exactly when I thought it was going to but with lockdown one we had like the main computer that my husband needed to work on and my brick of a laptop that my daughter needed to work on and thankfully my son mm. was um, still at primary school so I could just print out a bunch of pieces of paper for him on a Sunday night and fling them at him and yeah I was left using google drive on my phone <laughs> in the garden so God, I, do, I do that until because I was writing homeschool history at the same time as well which was keeping me sane mm. so I'd I'd work on my phone while also sort of overseeing the school work and then I would go on the computer and edit to make it make more sense <laughs> and to to give it some punctuation I mm. do that until about one in the morning <laughs> then I'd go again right. So I'm glad you liked it because that was a bit of hard graft. That's dedication. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's gloriously funny and it, it's very pertinent in its themes. And it, it, it's also wonderfully inclusive. Uh, uh, the, the whole cast of characters. Is, it, it struck me absolutely weird thing, thoughts, that it wouldn't have been permitted at school library 20 years ago. Yes, it wouldn't. Uh, and I've said that, I've spoken about this to my kids Um because I grew up under section 28 and I'm bi, I've always been bi and I only came out as bi at 39 a couple of years ago. There were feelings that I'd always had, but they'd, I'd, for various reasons, one of them being, I'm sure, not being able to communicate as a child and as a teenager, I sort of buried them and didn't talk about them and then felt that they weren't enough as I sort of was older because I was in a uh, in a male-female marriage and I was like well means it's not really enough is I'll just ignore those feelings um, <laughs> so yeah I was talking to my kids and saying, we were talking about how far we've come and we've still got a long way to go and mm. I still I, I worry a lot about the current rise certainly in, in transphobia mm. uh, and the sort of the normal the normalization and the it becoming more sort of socially acceptable and certainly among sort of maybe the, the centre right to centre left to worry, to start voicing those concerns about the children if we mm. are to allow certain groups of people to be talked about in schools and to be talked about in children's literature and to be talked about on children's television and and generally to to be part of our society including going to the toilet and going for a swim apparently this is going to do terrible irreparable harm to our children and these are exactly the same arguments that kept me repressed until I was 39 yeah. and yes yeah so I do sorry I went on a bit of a rant there so yes I, yeah. I was speaking to my children about why I'm concerned about a return to section 28 why I'm concerned about what's happening in places like Hungary Poland Russia various other parts of the world and yeah telling them did you know that when I was your age my book would be banned from schools and it is it is bizarre because it's my book the, the 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 relationships in my book are very sweet and very yes. fluffy there's lots of there's a lot of hand holding <laughs> there's yes. a lot of making eyes at each other there's a lot of telling <laughs> telling one new couple not to snog and then the shouting from behind the bush we weren't snogging and yes. people say, yes, you were, we saw you. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, each, as I say, you go, you sort of make, sort of write, write what you want to, to, to see. And that's what I wanted to tell. So because it was sort of the, the, the treatment of the witches can be seen as allegorical for being racist or being homophobic or whatever, I didn't want them to just stand for that. I wanted mm. them to, to actually like, not just stand for being queer, but to actually be queer. I don't <laughs> mention, I, I've always made a point never to describe any characters in a way that applies any sort of 
race to them. Mm. And I do mention that Messina, the main country where it's set, used to be part of a very important trade route. And as a result of that, there are lots of different ethnicities living there because traders from all over the world mm. sort of stopped off and had families and whatever. I, I mentioned that in, in one of the in one of the stories, one of the short stories that I'm telling about different characters. I sort of mentioned that briefly. So I didn't want them to just stand for for, for being queer or, be, or, or whatever I wanted them to actually be like that. So yeah, I've got a couple of lesbians, <laughs> um, a character who, who does say that he's bisexual, Jack's bisexual, and has a, a same-sex relationship with a, with a young man. And uh, Scarlet, the, the werewolf, is... I've, I've tried to make it clear that she's trans without misgendering her, because I don't want... I don't want trans kids to read it and feel upset at seeing a, mm. a trans character get misgendered, because I think that that could be... I don't want to re-traumatise anyone. <laughs> but yeah, Scarlet, Scarlet is trans and there's a few little clues in it when she mentions she doesn't get periods and she um, and she mentions mm. that somebody calls her a boy very, very briefly and then goes, oh no, wait, you're a girl. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we've launched into, into that without actually saying anything about the series for anyone who... I know, sorry. <laughs> no, uh, I just, it's, I just... No, it's, my, it's, 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 probably, it's my fault, actually. I, 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 I was, I'm just <laughs> intrigued to explore all that. The, the section twenty eight thing because it, it just struck me as, as, as being as being yeah it's something I'm very it's something that I'm weird, very yeah. angry about still yeah. <laughs> and yeah. the more I but think it, about it the madder I get that it's yeah. happened that only ended in the in the yeah. noughties for all of our congratulating but, ourselves about how cool we were in the nineteen nineties yeah we really weren't <laughs> no I've, for for listeners who haven't read the series could could you give a potted sort of brief summary of it? Or? Yes, so um, this is a land, uh, it's, it's set in a, uh, a fantasy retelling of, of the world where magic is natural, where there are magical creatures, basically anything that you hear about in mythology, anything that you hear about in folktale is real and it all exists side by side with people who are not magic and this is set in a country where magic has been forbidden uh, by a we find out later that it's, it's actually quite a recent religious cult <laughs> that have taken a, a religious, some religious authoritarians who have taken over this country that turns out it was only about 13 14 years ago that this happened but it feels like it's been forever <laughs> they are retelling stories to make out that all these magical people are wicked and they're wicked witches that live in the woods and all the monsters and the beasties have to live out in the woods basically the wood is a ghetto that they any magicals that they can't kill are sort of forced out to, to go and hide out in the woods like a bunch of losers because racism and misogyny go hand in hand having got rid of, of all the magical beasties and, and witches they are ne- um, the this cult of authoritarians are now turning their eye on girls and women who look a bit funny because that was what that's what the witch hunts were (laughs) they were having a go at women who they thought were a bit much (laughs) so so the the rules are getting more and more misogynistic and they are now picking on girls who can do maths girls who um, women who have a trade that sort of thing so there is a, a a 13-year-old called Gretel who lives out in the wood and who's far too clever for her own good. She's very smart. She's an inventor. She is not magical at all, but some huntsmen come and accuse her of witchcraft and she has to run out into the woods and hide because she also has to protect her own family because there is a witch in her family and she is basically taking the flack for that witch, the, the magic that exists around that member of the family so she runs off and hides uh, she meets a bunch of uh, witches in the woods who turn out to be really really nice and they take her in <laughs> and when she becomes part of their gang they start talking about how they can protect her village from the further ire of the huntsman whose eyes have been turned that way my elevator pitch for the first book was seven samurai but with fairy tale characters mm. uh, because it's about a disparate bunch of characters yes. from different fairy tales yes. there's snow white there's jack from jack and the beanstalk there's gretel there is the the gingerbread witch from hansel and gretel and they come together to form a gang to rescue this village who are being so, attacked uh, by uh, baddies. Uh, that's, 
add that to the ever-increasing list of, of retellings of Seven Samurai. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bug's life, but with fairy tale characters. Yeah. Bug's life, that will be on the stars. Good, all of them, yeah. yeah. It's a good story. You get a gang together. And, yeah, you know, and absolutely. Protect. Yeah. So that was the first one. And then um, it, it all spins on from there. In mm. the, the second book, I, I keep, basically, I keep growing the fun. The forest. So my idea for for the trilogy pacing was to do it like a to do it like a video game where you finish one boss fight and then like a new area of the map opens up. Mm-hmm. So we're starting off with just the area of woods around Gretel's village called Nearby, and then after they finish off the boss fight of book one, they decide to journey north to where the mountains are and where there are some witches that uh, control much bigger, scarier animals. So the witches in uh, in the Darkwood area around nearby are a little bit rubbish, but there are witches in up, up near the mountains that control bears and wolves, and there's also a giant raven. And then in book three, after they've finished another boss battle, they go to the part of the Darkwood that isn't in Mercina, so the wood um, spans two small countries, one of which is completely closed off. It's like North Korea, which is called Ash Tree, and something terrible happened there. And they go into the part of the wood that, that belongs to Ash Tree and belongs to the Glass Witch Queen of Ash Tree, whose name is Ella and who is herself deeply traumatised. So you may be able to mm. guess who that's based on. <laughs> So yeah, it's sort of potted, potted books. It's yeah. fairy tale retellings, but a little bit twisted, but also a little bit, a little bit silly. Oh, there's mm. also a talking spider in a hat. Of course, <laughs> who's, every, who's everyone's actually, favourite? <laughs> one of my favourite characters, and he appears for, or he or she appears for about one paragraph. Is Poppet the dog? Poppet. <laughs> yeah, she's in book three. Yes. Yeah, she's hardly in it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was I was half I was half hoping that she wouldn't turn up again because it was just just great as a throwaway gag and and half hoping that she would because no, I, I, I liked her so does, much she? but she doesn't know she's, she's completely yeah. fine she yeah. um great. yeah she just has a great time <laughs> yeah. and I it's don't just, imagine she ever goes home she just she just no, becomes she just wild. becomes totally feral yeah, yeah. <laughs> Puppet the dog, puppet the wolf who has been bred down over generations to be the size of a guinea pig. (laughs) (laughs) She has heard the alpha wolf's howl and she has not come for her din-dins. Yeah, I absolutely love that. Yeah, I'm glad you liked her. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to to say was was what a wonderful swear word trousers is. It's just right. Yeah, thank you. I've occasionally used that as a sort of a swear word standing when my kids were little. These Mm. days I just F and Jeff in front of them and they know all the words anyway, they're 14 and 12. Uh, (laughs) um, But but yeah, so I was, I was, I originally pitched this to BBC Writers Room as a CBBC show and I always wanted it to be accessible to children so I thought well I, yeah. I always when I market it on on Twitter I say it's got no swearing and no fucking <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's um, yeah. I, I always wanted to to have stand-in swear words when they do swear properly I I say this person swore and it was worse than trousers but yes. yeah most of them say trousers except for except for snow who says fruit fruit yeah <laughs> because yeah. she doesn't trust fruit understandably because she's snow white <laughs> yes. oh god yeah of course yeah that's course. why she doesn't trust yes. fruit. <laughs> yeah. right yeah so, so i mean how, how does writing a series of comic novels differ from your normal writing gig uh, it takes a lot longer and it pays a lot less. <laughs> yes. But, no, I there, can are, certainly get, there are massive I, I upsides. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I make most of my money yeah, writing gigs for telly, a lot, some corporate gigs, things like that, mm. which is fine. And I get paid for like 
a few days of like proper work and it's still silly fun it's not like i'm an nhs nurse i'm not like working yeah. hard uh, you know i'm still being really silly and getting paid for it but when it comes to 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 writing the books i've got all this freedom that i don't get with mm. the other gigs the downside of it is i don't get paid very much but the upside of it is i want to tell stories i've always wanted to tell stories if i've got nothing else to do i will write fan fiction where i get paid even I get paid nothing <laughs> you just leave me alone and I'll just write so I may as well be writing a story that I want to tell so it takes a lot a lot more time <laughs> but I get to be a lot freer as well with 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 what I want to say with the characters I want to bring in it's like yeah I'll just I'll just bring in this character for a laugh I'm just yeah. bringing a, I'll bring in a small dog to <laughs> call Poppet for half a page just because it's funny <laughs> and I don't have to worry about when I'm writing like certainly with sketch comedy god you have to be so quick especially these days I mean it's not like the days of of like two Ronnies and um and Monty Python as great as they were you know they'd get five or six minutes to do a sketch these days 60 seconds and you're pretty much out you've got to mm. bring in characters and make it really funny and get out of it in a, a minute a minute and a half absolute top so you've got to be so so tight with your editing whereas yeah. when I'm writing a book it's like so dear, I'm just gonna be funny describing this so at the moment i'm writing the rooks and i'm i've got a fight that's going on in a, a, a petrol forecourt at a service station i'm just having a lot of fun describing it <laughs> which is yeah, great i can just do that for a bit that's the next thing i was going to ask you about because you this is another trilogy you've got lined up yes yeah it's a trilogy right. unless it needs to be longer than a trilogy <laughs> at the moment it's a trilogy but i was i was talking to the guys at farago i was like but if it needs to be longer than a trilogy, it'll be longer than a trilogy. I'm going to do a Douglas Adams and write a trilogy that goes on for four books. Uh, at yeah. the moment, it's, it's technically a, a trilogy. That's the plan. Mm. Um, and I'm into book two. Up, so book one's coming out in October for Halloween, because it's about ghosts. And then I'm working on book two at the moment, which is set at a haunted service station. So they're all set in... It's, so my theme is crap British Gothic. The spaces that are very particularly British but also liminal so the first book is set at an off-season seaside resort on an island in Lincolnshire and the second book is set in uh, one of those really manky not a nice shiny service station like Cobham but like a really manky one like Medway Services you know the, the ones mm. that are really brutalist <laughs> and they were designed to be all shining like Jetsons bright lines and sharp angles and mm. they were supposed to be like this sort of great symbol of the mid-century modern uh, the glory of the automobile and now it's the 2020s and they are manky and <laughs> they're covered in mold and they are unloved and they're just a place to go for a wee and mm. they've got these really sad because the casino corners in the service station are just like the saddest oh god that's for yeah. people who can't go two hours without gambling it's got one of those in it it's just these places that feel like even though people go there it feels like people don't belong there and service stations always feel haunted to me and there's mm. something really haunted about, like, a... I mean, I live really not far from Herne Bay and Margate. Whitstable's a bit fancier. <laughs> <Whitstable's> <laughs> quite, but places like Herne Bay, Herne Bay's got this, again, another sort of really brutalist pier. And there's something about it when it's the winter that just feels kind of off, off Yeah, I, I, I once spent a, spent a winter in Weymouth, mm. and that was that was grim. It wasn't grim though, it wasn't so much grim, it's just, grim. It's, just, it's just, just a bit weird, a bit yeah. sort of, yeah. A bit liminal, it's like yeah. you don't feel like anything belongs there. Like I went to, so so part of what gave me the idea to do it at Seaside Town was I went to the Craft of Comedy weekend ages ago, God, when was it, 2016 or 2015? It was a while ago, it was wonderful, it was it was glorious weather, it was, it was April, but it felt like June and it was lovely it was wonderful we had, all had a brilliant time but there was this one hotel called the Hydro Hotel if you google the Hydro Hotel Landudno it looks so haunted it's very fancy 
because it's got that whole something that fascinates me about seaside towns like my, my husband's from from Hastings which has got mm. this whole sort of fanciness to it it they were built to be the absolute beacon of luxury when they were built in the late yeah. 19th century they were places for very fancy people to go and have a, a very luxurious time but they haven't changed since then and it's again like the like these sort of beacons to to mid-century automobile travel that was supposed to be glorious in the future uh, those are places that were built to be grand and they've just been left and neglected and have fallen into decay. And that's a, a big theme of, of the Rooks is about neglect, whereas Darkwood is about authoritarianism and about deliberate oppression. The Rooks is about things being left because the people in charge just don't care. And it's a, it's a very different form of oppression and, and both of them are are horrible for the people who get caught up in it <laughs> so yeah. so yeah this is about places that are liminal and a bit crap and very british but have been neglected and left to decay and the people who are there have been neglected and left to decay as well so yeah that's <clears> the theme that's the theme of, of the rooks but again it's about excellent. again it's about family and darkwood was about a found family and mm. the rooks are about not traditional, fa well, a kind of traditional family. They're, they're, um, they're all adults and the adult children are still living with the parents because it's the 2020s and nobody can afford <laughs> to buy a house. You've got one married couple in the spare room. Um, so again, it is about, it's, it's about family, about families who love each other. I, I really love have, sticking a bunch of people together who fight but who love each other and just constantly bickering. <clears throat> and yeah, dark good dynamic. Mm, Darkwood had a lot of moments where because four of the, four at least of the characters have known each other for years before before Gretel moved in and before we sort of started talking to them they've got all these little sort of things that they, that have been going on for years that they'll refer to and say I told you not to talk about that I love little moments <laughs> like that you get little snippets yeah. of yeah but what about this mum we're not talking about that there's a lot there's a lot of that in the rooks because I just really love I really love relationships like that where you sort of get little hints of things that have gone in the past and mm. it's enough to be a throwaway joke and not enough to go into describing it actually happening <laughs> That sounds great. I, I, have you got any more plans for things to for Darkwood related things, or is that all of Darkwood? I never uh, did say you never. Mention some, yeah. Did you mention yes. some sort of short stories? And, and... <laughs> right. So what happened was, so Virago said to me to sort of to capitalise on because Darkwood's done quite well, been quite pleased with it. I've made back my my advance, which apparently mm -hmm. is good. <laughs> so to sort of to capitalise on that, go out with a bang, and sort of tell people the good news about the rooks we're doing a series of short stories about lots of characters from darkwood and see i'd already written when we were talking about things that we can do about darkwood i had already written a story about homily goggins because my friend said that her son that was her son's favorite character she was like right i'm gonna write him a little fan fiction i told you i'm a fan fiction writer and if you leave me be i will just write fan fiction and <laughs> my favorite kind of fan fiction are like little vignettes about the Yep. concentrate on character so it's like I would just do that if you I'm like I'm I'm like an infinite number of monkeys <laughs> at an infinite number of keyboard, uh, keyboards I would just go and so I just did that off my own back I thought well, what does she like he likes homily goggins I'm gonna write a story about homily goggins about her about her backstory so I already had one I sent it to them and said well could you write maybe six or seven more yes <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, this is brilliant. I'm getting paid to do fan fiction of my own work. <laughs> so I've done, yeah. <laughs> I've done a series of, of short stories about, about some of my favourite characters from Darkwood. I did ask around about what people would like. And then a lot of people said characters where I think it's funnier that we don't know, like the bin men and, mm. how, come, and how come Mr. and Mrs. Mudd are both their stepmother and stepfather, how that even works. It's like... I, I, I like no, that being a joke. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, sometimes you, you, there, there, there's, a, there's a bit of a tendency to over-explain things these days, isn't there? Yeah, it's just Some things just don't need explaining or don't yeah. want to be explained. Yeah, yeah it's just it's because there's always a stepmother or a stepfather in these it's, stories. It's basically like, the, the midichlorian like problem, isn't yeah. it? 
Yeah, I, I also like the idea that they're adopted and nobody really mentions it. So mm. they've, they've somehow found their way into being adopted. I think probably maybe what happened is that one parent died and then the remaining parent remarried and then the remaining parent died and the step-parent remarried. Maybe it was that, maybe they were adopted and they just choose stepmother and stepfather as mm. honorifics uh, so that they don't um, get them confused with their birth parents. I don't know, but I liked that it was a joke. So we're not getting yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Mudd's story. No, no, we're getting the story of Harry Goggins. We're getting Jack as a child. We're getting Scarlet as a child. We're getting the Aladdin story. Aladdin gets mentioned very briefly in Glass Coffin, mm. but we don't find out much about him. And I, I wanted to do the story of one of the one of the Citadel witches who are having to live in terror <laughs> undercover, right underneath the noses of the huntsman. So I, I wrote his story, and I'm writing I'm writing Trevor's story. Of course, I couldn't get away. Of course. With that. Oh, of course. and I'm telling the story of Oi. As well oh yeah boy the dwarf which was quite a quite a nice story i i liked that i only just i only decided when i was writing that bit that that oi is their mother that they're um that the whole reason that that the dwarves are, are running around as a pack is that they're a mother and their litter because that's how you will that's the reason that you would often have wild animals running around as a pack it's, yeah it's, it's a mum right. and her kittens and they're just um, most six of them are juveniles and boy is their mum so yeah it's the right. story of oi which is i like oi a lot i mm. like the dwarves a lot mm. uh, i like how kind they are <laughs> <laughs> but certainly a, a lot of the kindness comes from oi but yeah, yeah so i've uh, written written a few of those and they are available if you go onto prago's website the the book is actually the first book is actually available for free when is this coming out? This will be coming out uh, next Monday. Oh, yeah. Provide the book's, that, yeah, the that book's available on time. For, yeah, the book's available <laughs> for free. The, the first, the first right. Darkwood book is available awesome. for free to download um, as an e-reader. If you've already read it, then the good news is that you could also gift it to somebody else who's got a Kindle and who needs some nice. cheerful spiders yeah. in their life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can also get um, sign up to get those, uh, those free short stories, uh, which is very exciting. Great. Sounds wonderful. Well, thank you very much for coming along. Thank you very much for letting me rattle on about sexual <laughs> behavior for too long. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like, like to explore some different things on, yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, this place is intended to be free from adverts, or as if anyone paid to advertise here anyway. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to reward us by buying our books. Gabby is on Twitter as Scriblet. I'm on Twitter as John Pinnock, and my website is at jonathanpinnock.com. And do please rate, review, and subscribe. You'll find this podcast in all the usual places. Next time, I'll be talking to the short story writer and novelist Dan Brotzel about Lucy Calloway's Who Moved My Blackberry, as well as his own work, both as part of the uh, Crawley Writers Group and in his own right. See you then. <laughs>